This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us. Have you ever asked yourself, how did this country become so woke and why? Well, we can lay blame at the feet of the purveyors of social justice, which my next guest calls a deadly cocktail of grievance that fights by publicly shaming its critics, angrily mobbing its opponents and seizing control of America's cultural arteries. Worst of all, after spreading for decades, social justice has a sizable lead in the culture wars. Is there any way that Americans can win the battle against social justice and the elevation of society's worst people? It's a great question. We're going to get some answers today from Eddie Scary, a nationally recognized journalist focusing on politics and culture for the Washington Examiner. And he is author of the book we'll be talking about, which is called Privileged Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Great title and great to have you with us, Eddie. How are you? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's a joy to have you. Tell us a little bit about the lead that social justice warriors have right now in the culture wars. What do people need to know? Well, we certainly see in the Democratic Party, I mean, and that's that's a, a focus of one of the chapters of my book, uh, Privileged Victims, but in the Democratic Party, I, this is the first, the country's first social justice primary. Um, we're seeing uh, this ideology at work right now, and I think this is uh, a my theory is that the, a big reason why Bernie Sanders has been so successful is because every single day he comes out on the campaign trail, calls uh, calls President Trump a racist, calls him a bigot, calls him a homophobe. And not only that, he he took the biggest leap that any of them took at all, any of the candidates, when in New Hampshire, um, at the debate in New Hampshire, he stood on the stage and said, America is a racist society from the top to bottom. Um, and that's that's how this whole ideology operates. It, it, it's, it's about grievance. It's about victimization. It's about oppression all on the basis of gender, race, and sexuality. So we're seeing in the Democratic Party, at least, it's a very popular, it's a very popular concept. You can get ahead, if you, you can get ahead very quickly um, if you buy into the social justice scheme. Um, but assuming he's the nominee, I'm, I, I think that this election will be a barometer as to how far down this country is, um, down this rabbit hole. But again, I think that the, the jury is out on this. We don't have an answer completely yet. Yeah, I agree with you there. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember when people who were running for president actually talked about ideas other than just insulting the president of the United States nonstop. I mean, it's so emotional. It's so irrational in so many ways. It's so Marxist in many ways to separate people into classes of oppressed and oppressors. But why is it working, do you think, Eddie? Why are so many people buying into this and and not thinking about how irrational it is? Well, there's two two elements to why it's working. One of which is that nobody, well, meaning people, which is the vast majority of America, they do not want to be called a racist. They don't want to be co- confronted with being called a bigot or having to explain why their views are not homophobic, um, bigoted in any kind of way. So there's a natural tendency for a lot of people, for most people, I would say, to just shy away from the fight. They don't like that fight. They don't like being called those names because they are the ugliest names in this country. Uh, but the other part of it is that, again, this is an ideology that has spread 
spread. It, it, it started with academia. It spread throughout college campuses. And, and this whole thing does rage on um, basically every university campus across this country. Um, it spreads and infects the children. It's, it's pushed out through the, um, through the, the professors and, and the administrators there. Um, and then Hollywood loves the dynamic of it. It's a, the, the dynamic is uh, the privileged versus the oppressed, the aggrieved, the victimized. That's the story they love telling. That's the message they love putting out over and over again, reinforcing that message. And it's the same same story that the national media love to tell. That's that's what happened with um, that's what happened with the Nick Sandman and the the Covington Catholic kids. They, yes. This image goes around that oh these are the white the white males and they're the privileged because it's a private school. Um, and then here's the, the the poor victimized and oppressed and aggrieved um, American Indian. That's that's what they see and that's what they set up in every single story that the national media love to tell. So, so again. And that's in the title of my book about the culture fascist. The culture fascist because they're reinforcing this message over and over and over again. Hollywood, the national media, academia, and then in politics now. One more example I'll give you is the, the, the squad, the so-called squad of the Democratic Party. AOC and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the only reason that they're elevated at all is because they claim to have been, to be, to be victims and oppressed and aggrieved based on, in their case, it's, it's their gender and their, and their race. Those are the two things that they claim as their forms of victimhood and having been oppressed. And again, that's a story that the that the media love to tell. That's why she's they're heralded on glossy magazines, glowing profiles on cable news just about every day. So again, this this whole thing has infected every part of our country, um, and that's that's why it has been so successful because they've seized the culture. Well, right. And in the case of Omar, the Islamic, uh, you know, identity is also very key because she can get away with committing potential alleged immigration fraud by having married her brother. And the liberal media takes a a complete blind eye. Oh, we don't want to talk about that. Why would we talk about that? Oh, sure, because that would be racist for us to criticize anyone. Uh, but and of, of course, she knows the game. She knows that if she is criticized, all she has to do is say, that's racist. That's yeah, racist. Right. You're coming after me because I'm a, I'm a threat to the privilege. Well, no, we're coming after you because you've done some weird things and you've said some <laughs> weird things, and we don't like that. Is it okay to criticize you? Well, again, a lot of people don't want to be called racist. So back to your other point, um, that's why it, this whole thing can be so successful. That's, this is how they fight. They call you the racist, the bigot. Yeah. Uh, they say, I'm the one who's suffered at the hands of the privileged, um, and on and on it goes. Well, it does. And and this whole issue of my identity gives me a unique perspective on reality that you are forced not only to listen to, but to accept. Isn't this fundamentally a totally postmodern view of life? Oh, yeah, that's a, a big, big part of social justice. Social justice ideology is just an amalgam of every one of the left's worst ideas, um, including the postmodernism uh, view of the world. But it's Marxism, it's, uh, it's socialism, it's communism, it's feminism, it's queer theory, critical race theory. All of those things are in social justice. But, yes, that's a key feature of the way this operates is every, every person, depending on what level of grievance or victimization or oppression that they can claim based on their overlapping identities, uh, that's their truth. And you can't possibly understand it. So you need to check yourself. You need to check your privilege and listen to me. I'm the one who gets to speak now because I'm the victim. Yeah, it's kind of funny, though, because it breaks apart. For example, if you have all the feminists marching on Washington and screaming about Trump and you know screaming at the sky and all that, 
What it negates when they're talking about shouting their abortions, for example, are the millions of pro-life women in this country. So in other words, they assume these identities, but people who have similar identities who don't have the same ideology are just left out of the equation. And then they turn the race factor on those people. Well, you don't have as much of a say as a white pro-life woman because you have not been where I've been, perhaps as a minority woman who shouts her abortion. I mean, it's so insane. Who can keep track of all these identities? Well, that's the culture fascist element of this. As you said, they're left out. Yes, they're completely ignored. And again, the the culture fascists in the news media and Hollywood, academia, and the Democratic Party certainly they promote the they promote the ones that they determine. These are the victims. No, these are the ones you have to listen to because, like you said, their identity is 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 more important than yours. Why is it more important? Because we've deemed that they've suffered more than you. To to have suffered, to have claimed victim, have been a victim, to have to say that you've been oppressed. That is to be inherently good and social and and and. Social justice sickness that's per, you know all around our country. Yeah. If I can claim those things, then then I am inherently good. I'm in, I'm innately superior to to anyone else deemed to have privilege by the culture fascists who run this country. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And going back to something that you said a moment ago, you hear lines like "my truth" all the time. I want to tell my truth. That's fundamentally postmodern as well because there is my side of the story or my opinion. But when you're using the phrase "my truth," that is over and against the idea that there is objective truth and objective reality that stands outside my experience. I could be dead and apples still fall from trees because of the law of gravity. Right, but it actually even goes a little bit further than this, and this is the worst part of it, I would say, in terms of this this particular um, feature of the social justice mob, um, the ideology, is not only do I get to tell you what my truth is, but if I can claim a higher form of grievance or victimhood on the what we call the intersectionality scale, yeah. I can tell you, no, what you, you may not think that what you said was racist. Let me tell you that it was racist <laughs> because I, it's my truth. It's my experience. I can tell you that. Um, and you don't get to have a say if you're, a, a, a worst of all, a straight white male in America. Um, but if I can look at you and say that, no, but you, you benefit from a different type of privilege. You may be a woman, but you're white. So therefore, me as a if I was a black woman, I have, I happen to be a Latino, and yet I don't think I, I have never thought to myself to claim any of these types of yeah. oppression points and victimhood. So, yeah. you know, you, you're not going to see me hired by the Washington Post. Yeah, that's right. Eddie Scary, we'll be right back. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody says. 
This is the end of the story of a young mom who planned to end her pregnancy but chose life after visiting a preborn center. Preborn steps into the lives of hurting young women who are being told that a preborn baby is not a life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct answer to Planned Parenthood, helping young moms choose life. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something God gave me for a reason. You can be a part of choosing life with young hurting women across the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now, through a match, your gift of $140 will actually help save 10 babies instead of five. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I guess I need to work on my identities so I can claim I've been oppressed by somebody. I guess I could just make something up and then I'd fit right in with the social justice warriors or as my guest Eddie Scary calls them culture fascists. His book is called Privileged Victims and we're talking about social justice and how it really is in the lead when it comes to the culture war right now. Eddie, we were talking about the whole issue of oppressed and oppressor. A lot of this though that is claimed is not necessarily factual. Would that be fair to say that, that a lot of the claims that I've been oppressed and I have had this terrible grievance because such and such has been done to me, a lot of this isn't true. And you see this coming out, for example, with people like Jesse Smollett. I mean, you see these hate crime hoaxes all the time. And, and is that part and parcel of how they move the ball forward? Yes, and that's exactly true. Whether whether the claim to oppression or grievance or victimhood is true is always beside the point. Um, it doesn't really. It, it it can come to light in like in, in cases like Jesse Smollett, where we we fortunately found out that it, it looks like he faked this. That's what Chicago police say. That's what two grand juries have determined. Um, but he knows that in this country, he he knew certainly, and and mostly everyone else is catching on um, that if you want something, what did he? They said that he wanted he wanted more money from his Fox Empire show, um, and he wanted to get more famous. He certainly got more famous, became a celebrity, a, a much bigger celebrity overnight. Um, but again, his claim wasn't true, and that goes. That's that's true for um, many, many, many other people. I think, it, in particular, you see it in Hollywood with the movies where the, the woman is uh, she's she's being held down by men, and but because she's you know she's got confidence that, <laughs> that that's yeah. supposed to be heralded, even if even if the movie isn't any good. Right. One example was the, the Ghostbusters movie. They tried to they tried to take out all the men and, and make it make them all women, all the cast of, of women. The movie bombed because it was bad. But the, the 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 message was more important than the quality. The message is first and foremost what what's in mind when they're trying to push this thing. Uh, the movie bombs. You have the the fran- the people who run the franchise, the producers say, you know, what, we're just going to go back to the way it used to be, and we're going to cast we're going to cast males for the, the roles. One of the actresses, her name is Leslie. I forget her last name, but she she then throws a fit on Twitter. The one who had been in the all woman cast and says, well, this sends the message that boys are better than girls. So you see, all they're doing is pushing this. It doesn't necessarily matter that it's good. It doesn't matter if the, vic- the claim to victimhood or oppression is real. I'm sure she's doing just fine living out in Hollywood, making lots of money. But she claims it, and that's supposed to matter to somebody. Oh, good grief. So I have a moral responsibility to go see some bad remake of Ghostbusters with a bunch of women I have no interest in seeing. That's on me, then. It's not on their bad movie. Oh, yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's always... Um, I mean, you you can see this again in every for the Democratic Party, for example. The, the, 
it completely escaped them that the minority candidates that were actually running for president were having to drop out in large part because minority voters had sided with the white people. Yeah, <laughs> and yet right. the, the Democrats in, in, within that party who, who did support those candidates and, and liberals in the media kept saying, Oh, isn't this such a shame that all the minorities keep dropping out? This must be a racist country. Well, no, there's something wrong with your party or something going on there. Don't blame that on the country. Yeah, right. Well, this whole thing that we're a racist country, I know when we go back to the Obama years and all the stuff that went on, the balkanization, the intentional, I would say, balkanization of Americans into classes that, that really ramped up under Obama. I have never heard a leftist adequately respond to the question, how in the world can you claim that America is racist when Obama won? two terms in office. If we were fundamental racists, how could he have won? Right. No, there's a lot of contradictions in this whole social justice ideology. Uh, things things aren't necessarily supposed to make sense. There aren't really supposed to be arguments. In fact, the less argument is the better. You're just supposed to shut up and listen, depending on who, again, claims to have been victimized, oppressed, or um, or aggrieved based on, based on their claim that, you know, it's because of my gender, it's because of my race that you did this to me, that I'm a victim because of my sexuality. Um, any number those things are way more important than talking about arguments or facts or logic. Yeah, well, why you know why use facts and logic when you can just hurl an insult at somebody and get them to knuckle under? I mean, that's that's effectively what they've done. These identity politics purveyors are, are very good at that. I, I've got a question about border security because one of the things you address in the book is social justice and what's been going on regarding the fight over you know the border walls and all the rest. I mean, what are your thoughts on how the Democrats have kind of morphed over the years? from backing protected borders to screaming about kids in cages that, factually speaking, started under Obama anyway. What, what is going on here, do you think, in the broader question of social justice and its effect on politics? Right. Well, this is the spread of social justice. You've, this is that's a perfect example. And there's an entire chapter in my book about immigration, entire chapter chapter on privileged victims about just this thing where even if Democrats did support it at one time, they've not, they've not, this is the effect of social justice making its way through the party. They now say, oh, wait, no, that, that's a racist thing because, and again, even if you can make the case that's no, obviously it's not racist. We can, we can be not racist um, and just hope that we know who's coming into the country. We want a policy that says not everyone just gets to dump themselves in here. And, and we hope that you're, you're going to contribute. We should be able to evaluate who comes in. But no, they, this is, again, how you get power, because that's what this whole thing is about, is achieving power, achieving your your advancing your own special interests, and for, that's why it's a political debate within the Democratic Party, and that's why they've taken the position that they do. As nonsensical and illogical as it is, they know that to say, oh, well, this is racist. I'm calling you a racist. You have to stop talking now. You have to accept, you have to accept our policy, and you have to elect us now because we're not the racist. Um, the Republicans are the racist. President Trump is the racist. Normal Americans who believe that there should be some orderly process to entering the country rather than just stepping across the river, um, those people are all racist. So again, it's about power. This is how they do it. And this is this is social justice in action. Right. And this is why they don't put, for example, Latinos on TV who will say, hey, I came here legally. I'm all for what Trump is doing. Those people don't get a say. They don't get interviewed. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> we saw it multiple times when Trump would have a press conference and he'd bring up um, border patrol agents, the overwhelming 
number of which are Latino, and I've been to the border twice. I've talked with them. They will all say, we'd like a border wall. We can't, we can't manage this obscene number of people while the asylum law is, is, is the way it is, which is basically just a big gap in our immigration system that says anyone's welcome here so long as they can set foot in the country and claim, claim asylum. Um, all of them are Latinos, but Trump would try to put them on TV at the White House, no, le- no less, at the White House in a press conference, and then the MSNBC and CNN would, CNN would instantly cut away from it. No, they don't want to hear from that because it totally disrupts their, their whole narrative about who's the privileged and who's the victim, yeah. just like they push in the social justice ideology. Yeah, it's Pravda all over again. And I'm curious, when you talk about these cultural fascists elevating the worst people, who would you classify as some of these people, these worst people who are being featured and elevated by social justice warriors? Uh, well, in the Democratic Party, I would say it, it is the squad because their whole, they, they've, to uh, my knowledge, they've, they've accomplished nothing. There's nothing on their record, and yet they're lauded by the news media, put on, the, put on glossy, glossy covers of magazines, and no, no, no journalist in the national news, news media has a bad thing to say about any of them, no criticism at all. Yeah. Um, in Hollywood, you would see someone like Amy Schumer who gets famous, someone who uh, does nothing but say the most vulgar things. Right. <laughs> she, gets, she gets then put on, and her movies are awful. They're absolutely terrible, and I say that as a matter of fact, not a matter of opinion, um, and yet the New York Times, the next thing you know, will run um, run an entire profile where she's photographed um, wearing a sexy top, and <laughs> this, these are the people that, that benefit the most, and I, I, a perfect example, like you said earlier, was Jesse Smollett. What do you want? He wanted money. He wanted to get more famous. Out, he claims that he was attacked for being black and gay by two white Trump supporters instantly. All the outpouring of support from celebrities much bigger than him. We all know his name now. Even people in the Democratic Party were coming to his defense. People in the news media were coming to his defense. Despite, you know, we didn't know anything about him. We didn't know if he was a good actor. We didn't know if he was a good singer. But, no, he claims victimhood. Go ahead and elevate him. These are the things I'm talking about. Yeah, except for all of us who are from Chicago who heard the story that there were guys in MAGA hats walking down the streets <laughs> of Chicago. We went, sure, Jesse. Sure, there were tons of MAGA hat wearers in Chicago. Yeah, all right, sure. I mean, he, he at least could have picked a big red state city, and maybe he would have been a little bit more believed. But, again, that's back to the whole thing that they're up to, which is to control the way people think. Where do you see this headed, though, Eddie, when you're looking at the effects of social justice and this kind of groupthink that they're putting on Americans? How, you know, is there any chance that people can really fight back against this and, and squash it? Because it definitely needs to be squashed. But is there any hope for that? Well, we have seen signs that people are willing to fight back against this stuff. I think a big part of Donald Trump's election in the in the 2016 um, campaign was a cultural answer. It was it was saying, you know what, we're tired of being told we can't say what we want. We're tired of being told if we think this way, we're racist, even though we're not racist. I think that was a big appeal that he had. He said, you know what, I don't care if the national media says this. I'm going to say it because I think it's the truth. Yeah. Um, I think the the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh was another uh, another sign because. What, what was the criticism of him? Uh, it was that, well, that you accuse him of rape, but why can't he properly or, or legitimately defend himself? Well, because he's a white male. He's a straight white male, and everyone on the Republican Judiciary Committee defending him is a straight white male. So why, why should we listen to them? Yeah. Uh, well, he got confirmed. He sits on the Supreme Court. Donald Trump may win election again, but people do have to be willing to fight. They have to be willing to say, you know what, you can call me racist, you can call me, but I'm not going away and I'm not shutting up. Well, and what about calling out the hypocrisy? I know an awful lot of white people, I would put myself in the same category, who are sick and tired of being called white supremacists and white privilege and white. There are plenty of white people 
people who grew up with absolutely nothing and worked their way and studied their way into achieving the American dream. And that's the dream that's available to anybody who will work hard. I mean, that's a narrative that I think needs to be put out there that you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Northam, Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, can have a blackface scandal and nothing happens to him. That never would have happened had he been a Republican. Oh, right. This stuff does need to be called out. You do have to show, again, some fight, I think. Uh, and the big reason why I wrote this book is because I felt exactly like what you're describing, you, how you said there are plenty of white people that came from nothing. Well, I'm a Latino man. I grew up in the working class South. My mother was an immigrant. My dad was a Marine. I wasn't given anything, really. I, I, I had a really nice family, but that's about it. Now, now I write on politics in Washington. I'm an author. <laughs> I'm not rich by any means, but I also don't run around claiming to have been victimized and oppressed, so right. maybe that's what's holding me back. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it is, but I think that you've got some great, great points and great stuff in this book. It's called Privilege Victims. Eddie Scary with us, and it was so good to have you here, Eddie. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you so much. All right, God bless, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. 1 Corinthians 9.24 asks, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. This is one of many passages in Scripture that talk about the race that we're in as Christians and encourage us to persevere in order to cross that finish line at the end of a life that is lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, often we think about the race as just ours, but in fact, we can look all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and see that the race we're in also is one that's in many senses also a relay race, one in which the baton of faith has been passed down from generation to generation. How can that both challenge and encourage us today, especially when it comes to evangelism. We're going to tackle that today with George Shamblin, who serves as pastor with the Center for Executive Leadership, and he's also an adjunct professor at Birmingham Theological Seminary. He's out with a new book called The Relay, Passing Along Your Faith in the Race to Save Christianity from Extinction. George, great to have you with us. How are you today? I am really good, and this is incredibly exciting. Thank you so much for including me today. Oh, it's our honor to have you here. Let's talk about this. What are some of your concerns about the state of Christianity right now, especially in the United States? Okay, you you just did a blog that was talking about freedom, um, communism, and Big Eva's betrayal. Yes. And it's just, it's so scary right now that the fundamentals of our faith have just come under attack. And in the past, we assumed that because a church at one point stood for the Bible and the Word of God, that's still the case. And right now we're learning, you know, who's standing firm, who is falling by the wayside. I think that the biggest obstacle right now is for us as believers to stand firm on the one thing, and that is the true, enduring, and living Word of God. 
Amen. Well, thank you. I appreciate your bringing that up because it really encourages me that you share the same concerns in many respects that I do. We're living in a very different period of time, it seems, than a time that I can remember before ever happening. You know, we we always kind of look to our evangelical leaders as being sound and solid and they would do what we always expected they would do, which is stand on the word of God. These are kind of shifting sands, it seems, for a lot of Christians I'm talking to. They're saying, what is going on with us? Why aren't we a stronger voice as a church, especially at a moment in time like the one we're living through? Yeah, I think the biggest concern that I have is Christians are really quiet right now. Mm. It's kind of scary that uh, this to me, Janet, is the scariest word picture in the entire world. And it would be if you and me and other Bible-believing Christians we're going about our day, and all of a sudden the stones started preaching the gospel because we were quiet. In other words, we've got to be preaching and teaching. Christians are so quiet right now. Yeah. And you, you may remember the passage I'm talking about where the Pharisees were telling Jesus, they said, tell your disciples not to say what they're saying. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, the stones will cry out. I don't want that to happen on my watch, and I know what you stand for is not going to happen on yours either. Amen. Well, that that's a really convicting passage that you brought up about the rocks crying out. And it's true. I mean, God's truth remains God's truth, whether or not we are talking about it or whether or not we're standing for Jesus Christ. But that's why we're here. We're to be his ambassadors. So talk a little bit about this race, because I mentioned earlier that we are all in that race. Scripture talks a lot about it. But you are right. This really is a relay race. We have to keep passing that baton. It goes all the way back to Adam. Can you talk a little bit about why the relay is important when we're looking at this moment? Of course. I'm really kind of shocked that this has become such a popular mantra among Christians. You've heard it. Most of your listeners have probably heard it. When people say Christianity isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. That's really not biblical. Christianity is more of a long-distance relay. We have to pass off the faith. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, be a Christian, retreat off by yourself, don't interact with others, don't be in community, fellowship, church, don't worry about winning others for the gospel. That's not true. (laughs) Well, I started thinking, wait a minute, the the Christian faith is more like a long-distance relay, that if you and I and other believers aren't constantly passing off the faith, even more specifically, the baton, which the book is going to say, is the Word of God. If we're not passing off the actual Scriptures, the Word of God, it takes one generation, like in Judges, that says, there arose a generation after Joshua who did not know the Lord. One generation who did not know the Lord or the things he had done in Israel. We can't let the same happen with us. Amen. That's right. So going back to some of these key figures, and obviously there are many we could talk about, but you highlight a few of them in your book who I think are worth mentioning. The first being Adam. Now, it's kind of funny because here Adam is the one who originally got us all into trouble by taking that fruit and listening to Eve and they they ate the fruit they shouldn't have eaten. and, and, And we've been in trouble ever since. We've all inherited his sin nature. What about Adam's role in the relay race? How do you see it in retrospect? Because he he did blow it in a big way, and yet the Lord was there to continue to pass down that baton. Okay, I'm about to start coming out of my shoes because this was the most exciting class I took 
in seminary years ago, we had a professor that just locked in on Genesis chapter 3. I think we spent weeks on just the first 10 or 15 verses. And Adam's responsibility was very clear. He was a lawgiver. God gave him a very clear command that he could eat to his heart's desire in the garden, but there was one thing he couldn't do, eat from the one tree. And so in Genesis chapter 3, if you kind of start studying it, and this is very relative to today, I think it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, Eve is going to, she's going to pull back some of the force and the power of God's Word. She's going to kind of minimize the Word. We could almost say that's liberalism. The next verse, she starts adding a prohibition. That's legalism. Adam is standing beside her the whole time, male passivity at its worst. She ate, he ate, and just like you said, here we are today as a result. Yeah. That's true. Boy, I never thought about it that way. But that what are the implications when you understand that that really is how it went down? Well, I, I tell you, the implications are we've got to nail down exactly what the Word says and don't detract. Yeah. Don't get away from the fundamentals of the faith. What's the very first thing that came out of the crafty, crafty serpent's mouth? Did God really say? Yes. That's what we're seeing today. It's from what should be Bible-believing pulpits, we're seeing the same thing. We are seeing the same thing. Do you think enough Christians are on to that and noticing what's going on and discerning what's going on? I really don't. And if I I had one encouragement for people who are listening today, this, this would just simplify so many things. There's a really big word and I think it is the major upstream issue in Christianity. Here it is. Inerrancy. Yeah. Is the Bible 100% God's Word, yes or no? If people would simply ask their pastors and their churches just yes or no, this isn't a long conversation. Is the Bible inerrant? Is it 100% true, reliable? Like your uh, webpage says, it's not evolving. Come on, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Just if they would ask people and their pastors that question, the minute a pastor says, well, that's your answer. Yeah. And run yeah. out and go find the Bible-believing church. <laughs> I love that. It just gets it right down to the truth, which is if you have anybody who is there in your pulpit who's hedging on whether or not the Scripture is inerrant, run. I I tell people that and people think that's kind of mean sometimes. Boy, you know, you really need to be more tolerant. I'm saying, no, we're way too tolerant. This is why we are where we are. We've been so tolerant that we've tolerated error. That's exactly what Jesus was rebuking the churches for in Revelation. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And if I could share one thing, I'm so glad my brother-in-law who's a Bible-believing Christian, I'm so glad he loved me enough to offend me 30 years ago. The gospel is is precious, but for somebody who doesn't want to hear it like me, it was offensive. But he loved me enough to not say, George, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. He's saying, George, you've got a big problem with sin. Incredible. I want to pick this up on the other side of the break. George Shamblin with us. His book is called The Relay. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today.
Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide, standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. She's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only five $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us George Shamblin. He is the author of The Relay, Passing Along Your Faith in the Race to Save Christianity from Extinction. He's also a pastor with the Center for Executive Leadership. George, we were talking about the importance of passing that baton down, and it goes all the way back to Adam, that we need to continue to share the faith and be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so the faith will continue. That's our mission as Christians, obviously, in the Great Commission. But you were talking about your own experience a little bit with your brother-in-law. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that that really resonates when people say, hey, what happened in your life that somebody passed on the gospel to you and you became a Christian? Of course. we. My family grew up going to a church. We never heard the gospel. And all of a sudden, my sister started dating a guy that said Jesus in public. We thought that was so weird. <laughs> he would quote scripture, and we would get angry, and, and we would say, you're judging us. And he had never said a word. We were self condemned. I mean, he, you know, had not said anything at that point. And he just lovingly and gently started telling me how big my sin problem was. But God's grace was a whole lot bigger, that I couldn't do this on my own, that I would always fall short, that I had to trust the Lord Christ. And and I tell you, it was offensive. But God used the power of the message to get through a hard heart and completely changed my life. So I'm telling you, I'm thankful my brother-in-law loved me enough to say, George, I got to tell you, you got to 
sin issue, but there's a wonderful cure in Christ Jesus. That is so neat. That is so neat. But that's exactly how so many people come to know the Lord because somebody else shared Christ with them. So we're in this moment, though, where we're not seeing this often happening. I've seen some of these stats. I'm sure you've seen these too, George. Millennials, for example, I think it was in a a Barna poll of late, talking about sharing your faith with other people and trying to express your religious belief to somebody else is kind of intolerant. It's kind of not acceptable to try to push your religion on other people. And I thought, where have we gone wrong here? How in the world could we see the sharing of the gospel as anything but the greatest news and the greatest thing that we could do as Christians? We are all messed up on this score. We really are. And and I'll tell you something I've done. This is probably the neatest experience of of my ministry. I started telling men kind of as a result of this book, I said, y'all, we've got to actually jump in the arena as a little kid, we would get, uh, we'd watch wrestling, and you know the wrestler would be hung up on the ropes. But at some point, he had to jump in the arena. I said, guys, we're going to start a not so secret fraternity. I'm going to give us a pledge pin that's a little sword that reminds us of the sword of the spirit. You got to get off the ropes in the arena, and we lovingly said, don't come back next week unless you share the gospel with somebody else. Mm. It has been. The sweetest experience. Now, every single day, I'm getting other uh, women's groups and dear friends of mine that are sending a text saying, guess what? And I'll say, come on, tell me, tell me. But say, George, I got off the ropes. It's that accountability, enough already with training, enough already with us taking in more truths. We got to give it back out. It's selfish for us not to give the gospel that changed our lives back out so that others' lives can be changed. And I've gone to preaching, but seriously, we've got to be verbal and vocal and loving with the gospel. We do. That's so neat. I love hearing that. That's exactly what we need. You know, what else it reminds me of is another biblical figure you highlight in your book, one of my favorites, which is Josiah. And I love, love that that passage in in Second Kings, I believe is Second Chronicles 34, I think, is what we're talking about. But where the book of the law is found, Hey, look, it's the word of the Lord. Maybe we should stop committing idolatry. Maybe we should remove all these idols from the territory belonging to the Israelites. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of somebody like Josiah in keeping the faith from going extinct? Of course I can. So it's almost like a a bad joke, but it's not a joke. You've got a scribe. You've got a high priest and a king. And it says, if we kind of look literally... It doesn't say, they're not saying we found a uh, the Torah. It says we found a Torah. They don't even know what it is. They're <laughs> looking at a book saying, we don't even know what this is. That's because the, their predecessors, those that came before them, did not pass off the scriptures and the word. They had to rediscover it again. Yeah. For people out there to think that could never happen in this country, oh, it certainly could, and The best thing we can do is make people aware this is what the Word says. Like Josiah, a whole nation turned around because of one person getting back to the Word of God. It's an incredible passage, and a couple of passages, actually. People need to go back and read those accounts, because it's such a change, too, from where Israel was during that period of time. All of a sudden, you know, uh, this man comes along. Oh, wait, wait, what does this say here? Wait a minute, we need to make changes. I mean, it seems in many ways that's 
a little bit similar to where we are. We have Bibles all over the place. Many of us have probably 10, 15 Bibles in various forms. And yet, why isn't our country any different? It ought to be completely different based on the fact that we have all these Bibles, right? It really should. I I refer to that as gospel inoculation. Hmm. It's almost like we get a little bit of the gospel and, and we fool ourselves into thinking that I'm okay, but we become immune to being completely consumed by the gospel. And that's dangerous. I tell you, I could not agree with you more. We take it for granted and we really shouldn't. Um, we, We just cannot take the word of God that we can freely read for granted at all. Amen. When you look at some of the disciples, um, you mentioned John, you mentioned Peter, you mentioned Paul, when you talk about some of the New Testament figures, these apostles who did so much to start the early church and and really you know, were the ones who got it all going. What do you learn from what they did about baton passing? Well, I can tell you, Erwin Lutzer, you had him on, and he was talking about proclaiming Christ in a hostile world. And I loved it. He went, and you went to Acts chapter 4. And in that setting, you had in cities seething with rage, and you had distortion and misinformation, and Christianity was getting shot down at every turn. And yet Peter and John said, we cannot stop speaking actually speaking what we have seen and what we've heard. That's today. In the midst of all that, the faith can grow, it will grow, but we've got to be out there sharing and encouraging uh, and be used of the Lord to that end. Oh, amen. I love that passage. I'm glad you heard that because that is one of my favorite passages. It keeps me going. I think that's the frustration that so many of us feel that at a time when we wish the church were different, we wish the church would experience revival and reformation. We wish that the church would be bolder. We have to go back and say, but it's happened before. And we have had all of these people whose shoulders we stand on as Christians today who were bold in the midst of worse times than we're living through right now, that actually gives us hope. Do you feel that way when you're going through some of these testimonies that this helps you run your race to see how these people ran their race? It it really does. And once we start kind of getting in that arena, like the early church did, they start getting in the arena, sharing the faith. Really exciting things happen. I promise, I think people would be shocked right now how open the window is for people that are receptive to listening to the gospel. This whole secret fraternity, secret sorority, not so secret, we all get together and say, wow, I can't believe I shared the gospel with somebody who's not a Christian, and they hugged me. They had tears in their eyes. They you know, read a Bible that I gave them. I, People are really open to hearing, but they can't hear if we're muted, you know? Yeah. We've got to be speaking truth. Yeah, you're right about that. We And you never know exactly. Anytime you have an opportunity, if you're sitting on an airplane or if you happen to be running into somebody in a grocery store, you never know the opportunities that the Lord can open up for you just to give somebody some hope. I mean, and that's, that's really indicative of where we are now. There are a lot of people who are really hopeless, especially after a year like 2020. It is so true. And I'm so glad you just shared that. A doctor here is trying to get off the ropes and and he's looking at one of his patients. She had an anchor earring and he used the reference from Hebrews that Jesus is the anchor of our soul. 
and he used all the uncertainty to ask this lady. He said, how do you know what God's will is for you? And she didn't have an answer. And he used her earring as an example to say, well, I can tell you about an anchor. And that anchor is Jesus Christ, and he can help you stay firm and grounded, and then just went on to share the faith. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. I love that. And such a great book. It's called The Relay, Passing Along Your Faith in the Race to Save Christianity from Extinction by George Shamblin, who's been kind enough to join us. So great to have you here, George. We really appreciate your stopping by and wonderful book. Thank you, and please keep standing firm. Such a big fan of you being bold. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, George, thank you. You too. God bless you. We'll be praying for you. You stand strong as well. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time.